0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. I'm going to confess to you that I left something very important at home. I got here and turned right back around and ran back home, grabbed it, got back here, and I just walked in as Pastor Frank was starting his prayer. So my mind and my heart are still waiting for a light to turn green. So I I hope that you'll be gracious towards me as I try to get my mind together here. This morning, the title of the message is Waiting Fruitfully, Waiting Fruitfully. I don't think anybody likes waiting rooms. Um, In fact, I don't think anybody likes waiting, but I'd like to speak today about a way to do it better. And I want to look at Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Here's what the text says. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down, and on the 17th day of the 17th month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, Now, on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth, so it returned to Noah in the ark. And he reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. And he waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. At the end of last year, in my final message of the year, I issued a challenge to our church, and I, along with you, Receive that challenge from the Lord. And that challenge was that in 2017, we would spend a year pursuing the Lord with everything that was in us. Do you remember that message? I don't know if, some, if all of you were there, but is there anything in your recent memory you pursued with everything that you have? Where there's nothing left? You could say, I could have given more, but there was nothing left. I gave everything in me to this pursuit. And the challenge was to spend a year in our pursuit of Jesus Christ, in our pursuit of our relationship with God, spending ourselves so that at the end of one year we could say, I don't know if I could have pursued God any more vigorously with any more focus than I did this year. I poured everything into that and God did something in response. And the calling was to put God to the test, put ourselves to the test, and see if God would not meet us in a profound way if we did that. And as part of that challenge, an indispensable part of it, uh, we really issued the call to get back into the Word of God. And we sent out an email to you about the Read Scripture app. And I've been doing that on my iPad. I, I joined that challenge along with many of you. And I've been reading the Word of God again. And I've been doing it with a prayer, a consistent prayer. Show me something fresh, God. you got to understand that I've preached about a thousand messages here at Harvest. I want you to think about that. That's like delivering a thousand verbal term papers in your adult life. And I've drawn all of them from the same book. (laughs) That's like giving a thousand talks about The Lord of the Rings trilogy. And, like, it's a great book series, but man. And so at some point you realize, like, is there more? And what's amazing to me is God's word is so rich, there is still more. And this past year, as I was reading, I I was reading Genesis 8, and I've probably read Genesis a couple hundred times now. Something jumped out at me that I hadn't really seen before or acknowledged. And it was this. We're all familiar with the story of the great flood, and we're familiar with the idea of, I don't know why this is, there we go. We're, we're all familiar, hang on guys, there we go. We're all familiar with the, the story of the 40 days and 40 nights. That's the number that everybody, every child from Sunday school has memorized, is the flood lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Truth is, if you read it carefully, that's how long the torrential downpour and the The floodgates from in the earth just shooting water up, that's how long the horrible crisis of the storm lasted. If you've ever lived through a bad storm, and in the southern part of our our country, we had some really bad storms, some weather-related fatalities overnight. If you've ever lived through a bad storm, one day, even a few hours of a bad storm are pretty shaky, jarring to you. The height of this storm lasted 40 days and 40 nights. And so it was traumatic for this family, and it was deadly for everybody else. But then as I read the story further, and as you probably experienced when I was reading that text for you this morning, attention begins to mount because I thought in my memory for some reason, my phantom memory, that the waters after 40 days and 40 nights are sort of went, you know, like the way you're drained when it's working right. <laughs> And then they were just like, let's get off this boat. But the truth is, and I know that the Hebrew calendar is not exactly the same as ours, but if I take these figures, he entered on the 17th day of the second month, and he exited on the 27th day of the second month. If I could take it as our calendar, he got on the boat with his family on February 17th of one year, and they didn't get off until February 27th of the following year. I want you to think about that for a minute. They were cooped up in that boat for 375 days. And only 40 of those days were spent terrified in the midst of a storm. And the rest of those days, some 335 days were spent waiting for the tub to drain. If you've got a clogged drain in your tub, that's agonizing. You just sit there waiting. And some of us know exactly what that felt like. You might love your family, but... 375 days is a long time to be shut in a boat with your family and no other human beings. You might like animals, but after 375 days, it's going to smell ripe in there. And you, no matter how much you like any place on earth, if you're stuck and shut into it with no options for over a year, all you're thinking about is, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get off this thing. Some of you might be there right now, figuratively speaking. In the midst of a period of waiting, maybe the the storm has passed, maybe the worst of it is over and you survive somehow and you sense that there is this promise held out to you by God that better days are coming, that he will be faithful, that there will be a brighter tomorrow and you're waiting but the waiting feels like it's taking a really long time. Like, sure, I'll wait. But seriously, how long do I have to wait in this limbo stage? When will I reach the end of that tunnel? When am I going to get out of this nightmare and back to my life? When will I get to move on and resume? If you're not there right now, you've been there before, or you will most certainly be there one day. No human being escapes the forced wait imposed on us because life is messy. People are sinful. We stink. And that's just the way it goes. And when life makes you wait, when God makes you wait, and the waiting is longer and harder than you ever imagined, and all you can think about is, when will this end? We have a choice to make standing before us. And we have two options. One is to waste that waiting, thinking only about when it's going to be over and how long it's going to last. And the other is to lean into the waiting and trust God and say, you're the one setting the timetable here. You're the one telling me I must wait. I don't have an option. I've exhausted all of my power. Everything I can do to shorten the wait has been done. And all I've got left is to sit here, and wait on you, God. And if that's what I'm made to do, there's a way to do it that leans into it, trusts God in it, and waits fruitfully, not just impatiently and in frustration. So I want to give you some things to do when God makes you wait, and makes you wait longer than you ever wanted to on your own. I'm going to give you three places to look When you're made to wait by God. The first place to look is to look back. I broke something, sorry. Look back, okay, look back. You know, when we're going through the storm, we're so driven by the need to get clear of it, to get out of it, that it's really easy to miss some of the important things we're supposed to learn in the middle of the storm. I don't think trouble usually promotes a very reflective state of mind. Would you agree with that? When you're in trouble and you're in the height of it, see, like let's say you live in in the middle of the the, the um, tornado belt and a twister is coming towards your house. That's not the time to sit down with your wife and say, "Why do we live in this state?" Hey, did we pay the credit card bills for the month? That can all come later. But in the middle of that crisis moment, all you're thinking about is get the kids into the cellar. Shut all the doors. Get in the brace position. You're only thinking survival. And as a result, we can miss a lot of what we're supposed to learn during the storms of our life. But then when the storm has passed, there's such a flurry of activity and such an impatience in our hearts to move on with it, to just get past it that we also then, even in the aftermath, when it's more reflective, or at least we can be, we then, even then, often fail to learn everything we can from the storms that hit our lives. Proverbs 26.11 is one of the most jarring and memorable verses in the Bible. I first came across it or paid attention to it when I was um, in high school. And it says this, As a dog returns to its vomit... So a fool repeats his foolishness. I've wanted to use that verse in a sermon for so long, and 35 years later, I got my chance this morning. If you don't have dogs, you have no idea what this is talking about. Dogs don't just vomit and then come back and go, hey, there's vomit. No, no. They see it and they go, that looks good. And they take a little snack. If you have dogs, you know how much, even though you love your dog, it turns your stomach, and then you wash that dog six times and won't let it kiss you for like a month. It's disgusting. And when you think about how stupid a dog is in that moment, this is why dogs don't run the world. That's just so stupid. Your body ejected a foul thing. It was in your stomach. You ate it once, and your body's like, no, no. And then your first thought is, I'm going to put it right back in there. That looks so good to me. And the wise man who wrote this proverb probably saw a dog do that and thought, that's us. That's us. There are foul things we want to get rid of. We eject them out of our lives. And then like fools, we look at it and go, no, I want it back. And like fools... We take things we don't want in our lives, we eject them, learn nothing from the ejection, and then go right back to our foolishness and take that right back in. And we wonder, why why isn't my stomach bothering me? Why does my heart feel so down? Why does my soul feel no peace? Because when something leaves you, it's meant to stay out, not to be taken back in. It's a graphic image. But it does paint a picture of those who learn nothing from their trauma. Who only know that life was bad and everyone's unfair and I have a string of bad luck and the universe is out to get me and no one ever cooperates. And sometimes you will pass through a season where all those things are true. But nobody has an entire life described that way. In every storm, there is something God wants to teach us, and if we don't learn it, we will eat back the very thing which the storm was meant to eject from our hearts. Noah and his sons and their wives, those eight people were on a boat for a reason. God had saved them out of all the human race because he was wiping out everything alive to start over. It was what I often refer to as the great cosmic flushing of the toilet. It was all gone. Everything gone. And he saved eight people, put them on a boat, and said, you will rebuild humanity. But this demonstration of wrath was meant for all to know forever that I don't take sin lightly. That the difference between right and wrong is not a matter of opinion. It is something of ultimate consequence to God. That he doesn't laugh off, what's the big deal? I've had serious arguments with people about the validity and the goodness and appropriateness of pornography, gambling, addiction to substances, saying, what's wrong with all this? What's the big deal? Do you really care? Do you think God cares who I have sex with? Do you think God cares that I said one syllable that means something versus another syllable that means another thing? It's just words, and I've had these debates with people, and underlying those debates is a fundamental presupposition that God only cares about some things and he doesn't sweat the small stuff. If the flood taught us anything, it is that God sweats everything, that things matter to him and that the difference between right and wrong is not a subtle shade of difference, a matter of perspective or how you look at it. It is of fundamental importance to God that we understand he gets to order the universe. He gets to define what right and wrong looks like, and we align with him. That is so important. And, and Noah and his family were preserved, having seen that horrible lesson, hearing the pounding of hands against the wall of the ark, having to shut that drawbridge. And I don't know, if, if it were me, I think at least one conversation I'd be having is, that was horrific, kids. I don't know why our family alone was spared, but that was horrific. And we got to make sure that when we rebuild everything, we never let those same problems creep back in. You remember what the world was like before, don't you guys? How awful everything. You couldn't even walk to the store without fear of being killed, raped, beaten up, robbed. That's the world we used to live in, and God wiped everything out. But if we're not careful, and if we're not extremely humble, we will end up rebuilding it the same way. And so if I were on that arc, that's the conversation I would have having, is what do we have to do differently so that we don't rebuild the same world that just destroyed us? Maybe they had those conversations, but I think there's some evidence that maybe they didn't because it's not too long after they get off the ark that noah plants a vineyard and a vineyard produces wines and wines grapes and grapes produce wine and one day noah was so happy with the haul from his vineyard that he got drunk out of his mind and he got so blasted that he passed out naked in his tent i'm not even going to ask well I'll ask without any expectation to raise hands. If you've ever gotten so drunk, you actually passed out naked in front of your family, that's really drunk. That's not, ooh, I just had one too That's just flat out too much. And no one gets that drunk because they're in a good mood. You get that drunk because for whatever reason, you couldn't handle, and the only way to keep moving was, you thought, to shut everything out, to numb yourself into forgetfulness, to say that I no longer have to take responsibility for anything, I'm checking out for a little while. And drinking that heavily is like a time machine. When you can't handle it, you take it and you lose a day, and then you come right back. (laughs) Some of you are like, that sounds good. No, that's terrible, because you lose that day and you come back to the same garbage, but it's worse, because you're diminished. Numbing ourselves with alcohol never brings out the best in people. In fact, numbing ourselves with anything never brings out the best. Do you know that 40% of all violent crime is alcohol involved? Do you know that every day 30 people die in this country? 30 people every day in alcohol related traffic fatalities. And it's a huge factor in child abuse, domestic disturbance. Alcohol. Taken in this excess brings the worst out in us. And it usually is a signal that rather than leaning into God, we're running away from everything. It's that forfeiture of responsibility that had so much to do with the way that the world fell apart before the flood. And do you remember that? The first murder, God asked Cain, Where's your brother? And what does he say? What? Am I my brother's keeper? What he meant was, what, am I supposed to watch this little kid all the time? He's his own man. I don't know where he's. Why don't you ask him? He knew exactly where he was. He was where he left him dead. But that attitude of why is everything my responsibility? Why do I have to be the bigger person? Why do I have to take the high road? When can I just check out and be a jerk like everybody else? Why can I be selfish for a change? And it's that desire which is understandable and so common to man. That desire to just check out, why do I have to care? Why can't I just run? That's how the world ends up so broken is that everybody altogether says that and nobody cares about anything and no one believes they have a responsibility to stay in the storm and trust God. It's shocking to me How soon after surviving the flood, Noah and his children returned to such a sad state. And as he passed out drunk and naked in his tent, son stumbled upon him, his son Ham, and he went, oh, that's messed up. How am I supposed to respect this man? Supposed to be my dad. And I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you were supposed to respect your father or mother and you saw them in such a state. You said, how am I supposed to respect that? And instead of covering his father's shame, he ran out and said, guys, dudes, come here, look at this. That's our dad right there. That's jacked up. So it's time for one of us to take over. This man can't handle. And because of it, Ham was cursed. And the dysfunction and the cycle of curses resumed literally within the first generation of trying to rebuild all of it. I share that because when God brings us through a storm, it's an invitation to take a good, hard, long look at that storm and ask, what happened? How did we get there? And part of the reason is other people. Part of the reason are forces outside of our control. But as Galatians 6, 7 to 10 remind us, it's not always everybody else and everything else says that, listen, this is a universal, trustworthy principle, that in general, for every life, we reap what we sow. That the seeds we throw into the field determine the crops that rise months later. And when storms hit our lives, and especially when storm after storm hits our lives, we would be wise to look back without defensiveness, without lies, without deflection, and just say, what happened? I once stood at an altar with this person. What happened? How did we get here? We used to be best friends. Why are we strangers now? I used to feel so secure in this job. How did I just get let go? And sometimes it isn't a consequence of something you did, but very often we have a part to play, and if we don't learn it, If we don't understand what we or others did to bring this about, we are doomed to repeat it the same way the dog returns to its vomit. I want to give you a second place to look when you're made to wait and you don't want to keep waiting. It's to look in. I think this is probably one of the biggest reasons why God permits the waiting to to prolong. Because we have usually, when people are in crisis, they they do look at what happened, and they look very carefully at everybody else's role in it and all the environmental factors that contributed to it. But the last place we usually look is at at the mirror, at ourselves, and say, what about you, buddy? And I know this is true because when I do counseling for people who are in a broken relationship, and if if you sat with me in these meetings, you know, one of the first things I say is stop imagining me with a black robe and a white powdered wig, like I'm a judge, and you keep and both people are like, oh yeah, well you don't know what she said, and then you want to know what he did? That's why I did that, and you know what? And it's like we're being so adversarial, and everything they're saying is about what someone else did or said. I've learned in my own life, the last place I look is right here. Jeannie and I have had some Um, precious, and by precious I mean frightening conversations lately, where she has shared with me ways that I have hurt her, and I had no idea. I mean, I walked around thinking, I'm a really good husband, and I'm a good husband because I'm a really good guy. And I was disabused of that assumption. And I realized that even as she was sharing her heart with me, My first thought was, hold on, wait a minute. That's not all on me. What about, and and I, I realized how instinctively we do this. So instinctively, it doesn't feel like a choice. It just feels like the truth. One of the last places we ever really look with honesty is at ourselves. We want to blame everyone else, but we can't sleep at night if we see the truth about ourselves most of the time. And yet God is big enough to protect us and to redeem us, but only if we will confess the truth. When we deflect, when we lie, we will never get at the grace of God, the truth of God that is promised to those who have a contrite heart. I don't know about you, but Noah... And his sons and their wives were the last eight survivors of the human race. And not by lottery, not by dumb luck, but because God said stuff like this to them. When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, go into the boat with all your family. Nobody else, just your family. For among all the people of the earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. I don't know about you, but that would that would have an effect on the way I look at myself. <laughs> well... <clears throat> you know, I mean, God could have picked anybody, but me and my boys and the lucky women that we decided to latch onto, we're the stuff. We're the cream of the crop and it always floats. I don't know if at some point people gave you a view of yourself. That is not accurate, whether good or bad. But I think at some point, to his credit, Noah was a virtuous man. When God told him he was going to destroy the world, as Evan Almighty taught us, it's not easy to believe that, right? And it costs you a lot of disparaging remarks and jabs from your friends when they see you building a boat in dry weather and telling them they're all going to be goners if they don't listen. Noah was a good man, and God acknowledged it. But at some point, I think that maybe Noah lost himself in that good PR, that good press. That because God said he was a good man, he stopped looking in the mirror and saying, what does that mean even? Is the goodness some irreversible characteristic in my DNA? Am I just so good I don't know how to be bad? Have I somehow been spared the corruption that has touched all of the human race? In other words, is the goodness God saw in me something in me and not something he put in me? If we were in Noah's place on that ark, I think one question we should be obsessing with is not how long, but why me? Why me? What really was it about me that God saw? And how do I not lose that? And when I look at all those people who drowned, can I really say, look what you brought on yourselves. Thank God, me and my sons never joined you. Can he really say that with honesty? There isn't a person alive but Jesus who can say that with honesty. Not even the first man and woman could say that with honesty. We may not be directly responsible for every bad thing that happens to us. but We never should lose the ability to admit with the Apostle Paul words like this. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. And I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. That's the perplexing riddle of me. Is that I want to be good. That's the goodness that's there, is I want to be good. But I've got to be able to acknowledge before God and everyone else, deep down inside, though, apart from Jesus, there isn't that goodness In me, it's the grace of God. If we don't look at ourselves soberly, if trials and storms don't produce a greater humility and self awareness, the waiting will persist. We may say that we are made to wait because God is cruel, because He's unfair, He is mindless of me, I'm forgotten. Or maybe I'm being made to wait because my friend, my partner, my spouse, my child is so stubborn that I'm going to wait until they get their act together. That may all be true that they have their part. But take a good long look because often our waiting persists because we haven't looked where we need to look. My kids, we have a rule at my house that uh, they they are never really. They do ask it anyway, but they're not allowed to ask it. I'll never answer it. And they say, can I be done when they're eating? Do you ever hear that question, parents with little kids? Can I be done? I'm like, you don't ever ask, can you are done or you're not done. There's no can I be. Are you saying, do you want me to look at your plate and lie? Yeah, you're done. No, you're, we gave you just enough food. You're done when all the food is gone. That's how you can be done is when you are done. There are certain things that are just true. Certain things that are just true. And when they say, can I be done, I will just sit there. <laughs> like. And they understand what that's about. They're like, oh, wait. And then they're looking again at their plate, and they realize there's still more food. And so they pick at it. And then they look again, and I'm still sitting there. And that's, I think, often the way... Father God acts is he says, I know you don't like sitting here, and there really is a way to hasten the process, but you don't want to go there, do you? It hurts, and I know it hurts, but do you trust God enough to go there anyway, to look at the worst things about you and know he has redeemed it and can redeem it? Let me give you one last place to look when God makes you wait and you don't want to. And that is to look ahead. When we're in the thick of the storm, everybody prays what in World War II and World War I they called foxhole prayers. That's when you're dug into a little man-sized hole, a vertical coffin, and shells are exploding around you, bullets are flying past your head, and you say to God, I swear, Lord, if you get me out of this foxhole... I will belong to you forever. I'll do whatever you want. It's very easy to negotiate generously when you're in the midst of the storm. And the truth is, psychologically, if you hooked up an fMRI to us, it would show that we fully mean what we're promising. I swear, God, if you just get me through this, I prayed so many of those prayers in my younger years. I've learned, thank God, not to pray such prayers now as often because I realized what a liar I am. The truth is when you're in the thick of it and you think, if only I get out, I swear I will be a new person. I know I will. I don't know. Maybe it's a marital dispute. And you say, God, if you just get us through this season, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm not going to be this way. I'm going to pay much more attention. I'm going to be much more humble, much more engaged, all of this. Maybe it's a heart attack, a near-death experience, a scare physically, medically. And you say, oh, man, that was really close. If you get me through this, I'm going to jog six miles a day. I'm going to eat only celery and organic foods. And Do you know what I'm talking about? When we're in the thick of it, we say, God, just get me through this. I will be a changed person. We all have such an idealized picture of our future self, don't we? The future me is an amazing person. Present me, not so much, but man, change one thing about my situation. Future me, he's going to rock it. Future me will blow your mind. Is that the same guy? And all it took was a little shakeup. But we know that as soon as God returns us to normalcy, as soon as that heart attack is a distant memory, as soon as that last fight, the one where she said, I'm done, is a distant memory. We often go right back to neglecting what we neglected, abusing what we abused. There's something about the return to normalcy that lulls us to sleep and makes us forget just how fragile life is and how important it is to live in front of God. There's a reason second marriages fail more often than first. And third marriages, nobody even really tracks fourth marriages. Third marriages fail at a nearly 90% rate. Most scientists stop measuring by fourth marriages because really, what's the point? It's because when we return to what we think we need, it puts us to sleep and we forget. And we think that if only I could just get out and move on, things will be great. But I'm not always sure we're ready for the next chapter so quickly. I mean, here's the thing. I'm grateful God is good. He is big enough to get us through the worst storms. He is. And if you're in a storm, hear those words, there is hope. He's big enough to get you through it. And I know that right now, if you're in this room, all you think is, I want to just get back to us, to how it was, to when my body felt right, to when my marriage felt right, when my friendships felt right. I just want to get back to that. And yes, you do, and God wants that for all of us. That's what we should want. That's what should drive us. But don't be so quick to presume that should you get it, you will handle it well. That you're actually ready for what you're asking for. He will get you ready, but the waiting is meant to do that. I imagine that the main question asked on the ark, and again, Noah had adult sons. The dude is 600 years old, so I don't think his sons were like 12 going, are we there yet? But I'm sure all three sons were like, seriously, Dad, can't we just swim for it or something? I got to get off this boat. How long do we have to stay here? And when you're in it, That's the only question we ever really seem to ask is how long. And in our hearts, the tension mounts. We say, the only thing I want is to be out there and move on with this. Leave all this behind me. But ask yourself, are you really ready to be out there already? Are you really ready? Because what just happened back there was so traumatic and you were such a big part of it. Do you ever want to live through that again? Because it's not that hard to repeat history. You think you're going to be better. But God takes his time making sure that's true. He's in the business of redeeming and restoring and transforming people. Not just flipping switches and changing the scenery. I don't know if you've ever seen that Russian couple that does that little magic trick during Bulls games where they do the quick change. You ever see that woman? She twists and all of a sudden she's got a new dress on. I'm like, what? What? How? I still think that's demonic. I, I just can't figure out how that could be a trick. <laughs> but let me tell you something. That's what we long for. Is how do I just flip like this, and all of a sudden I'm in a new life? And God says, you can change your dress all day long. It's not going to change the person wearing it. If you really think you want out, you got to be ready for out. Noah and his sons thought they were ready to rebuild humanity. Think about that. Technology is gone infrastructure is gone, civilization is gone, literature is gone. The only thing left is what eight people know in their own heads. If I picked a random eight of us, what would society and the world look like if we re- I couldn't even make a fire. Everything would be cold and raw. like, what could we do if it was just us? That's a huge task, and not just to build physical humanity but relational humanity. I think a year on a boat isn't long enough. We have to spend eight years learning how to be a doctor. This family had one year to learn how to rebuild the human race. And all they were thinking at the end was, seriously, how much longer do I have to stay here? I remember my first flight to Indonesia. It was a horrific flight, and by the time I landed, all I wanted was off. But I was seated in the back of the plane, and when we landed, slow-mo kicked in. And everybody was just moving like this. And I'm you know, like, "What? seriously. And all the people were waiting in the back. You would think they would start getting their junk together, but it was only when the people in front of them de-plane, they're like, oh, shoot, do I have everything? I'm like... Get off the plane. I'm going to scream if I don't get off this plane. You know how long it took us to deplane? 45 minutes. 45 minutes from the time they opened the front door to the time I walked off, and I was seething. Just looking at my watch, going, what's the word we all say when we're frustrated but can't swear? This is ridiculous. Ridiculous. I finally got off, and that's when my troubles began. I realized I hadn't filled out the customs... And I didn't know where to get another one. I realized that I hadn't gotten a visa. I needed to figure out visa on arrival. I'm normally a good traveler. That trip, I was struck by the stupid bomb. Like I was like somebody blew it, blue dart just gave me stupid. And I just I, I was like, what's going on? And then I realized I hadn't set up my phone for international roaming. I knew Peter Kim, our missionary in the field, was supposed to meet me somewhere. But I'm like, this is a big airport in a foreign country. Do I just walk around going, Peter? And so I'm thinking, man, and I'm scrambling around in a mad panic, and all I could think about was all I wanted was off this plane. And once I got off, I'm like, oh, I want to get back on that plane. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I squandered 45 minutes during which I could have taken care of all of that. There were paid people on the plane who could answer every question I had. And I wasted it sitting, looking out the window, going, all I can think about is just getting off of this thing. Are you there right now? Stuck in a place, a situation, a relationship where you're like, I just want out. That's everything in my flesh, in my being is going, run, get out. And God says, no, that is not even an option for you. There is no out. There's just here and here in this uncomfortable place i'm going to do something amazing in your life if you stop fighting the waiting and you start using it this waiting is not a sentence imposed on you it is a gift given to you because what comes out there it's scary Because out there is just back there again, over and over, unless in here changes you. Do you get that? We look back to learn. We look in to be transformed because we can look ahead only then to face what comes. The heart of all of this is this idea of patience. And patience is when our timetable and God's don't match. Isn't that what patience is? when we've done everything we could and God still won't let it happen. And at the heart of that is the fundamental question, do you really trust God and acknowledge he is God and he gets to be God? Because if we trust him, then the wait will never last longer than it needs to. And that's his kindness to us. If we bail when we thought we were ready, that's like the kung fu disciple going, "I'm ready for the fight, master." You're not ready. <laughs> I'm so ready. Let me just go. I can. Huzzah! I'm ready. And he enters the tournament and he gets killed. He says, you were not ready. <laughs> and we all watch the movie go, "Stupid kid, you sh- trust the master, dummy." But isn't that us? Trust the master. You will not be made to wait one moment more than you need to, but if you waste the waiting, it will just keep going on and on and on. So lean into it. Look back, look in, look ahead, but don't waste the waiting. God will meet you in it. I promise you that.